Good morning. I'd like for you to uh, get your Bibles and have them handy as well as uh, a pencil. I, I really want you to take notes on this thing and we're going to go through it kind of faster. You notice there are a lot of blanks front and back and I'm gonna, as I walk through it we're going to be filling them in because it's more important that you have this than it is for me just getting up here and talking and having something to fill in on that. Okay. Um, two-part lesson this week and, and next week. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I need you. I need your strength. I need your support and your help. I believe, Father, that what is going to be said is, is very important. I believe it's uh, something that touches and should touch the life of each one of us. That we should understand and appreciate how much you love us. That we are in the world, not of the world. We need you to protect us from the world. Help us to understand our part that we play in helping the world to come to Jesus. Father, I thank you for a time when you came into my life. Help me to answer a call and to be obedient to your will. I ask you, Father, for continued love and grace and mercy because you have forgiven me and watched over me in the times when I haven't lived up to that call. And yet, Father, you challenge me and you continue to love me to walk worthily of the calling I have in Jesus. And I believe that's true for each one of us here this morning. May we, Father, understand who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to do. And may we, Father, have a determined, deep, constant, consistent commitment to carry out your will for as long as we breathe in this realm. And we ask you to help us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. To begin with, I, I want to let you know that uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to introduce the lesson with. And number one is that uh, much of this material is not mine. I've, I've borrowed it. Uh, I ran across uh, some material that John MacArthur had presented, and I thought, boy, this is just spot on for what we need to do and what we need to uh, address here. So I've, I've tweaked it and worked it to where I, I understand and say, you know, I believe this, so I want to share it. And... Uh, at the same time, to realize that, you know, my, my gratitude to him for his study that he does to, to share some things with me that I can share with you. And the second thing is, the main reason for these lessons is that it was brought to our attention, uh, our being the, the leadership, elders and ministers, that uh, next month we have uh, an opportunity to vote on an issue that's coming up concerning late-term abortion. It's a very important thing, and uh, by and large, while we don't address uh, political matters from the pulpit, when there are moral things that are involved, we, we want to speak to that and, and say something for it. But I, I think there's a bigger picture here that we need to look at first and foremost. And so uh, that's why I want to address what I'm going to say this morning and, and next week as well. So uh, with that in mind, I, I, I do think it's true that we rarely should say anything about politics and culture and society from the pulpit as such um, or, or in a public forum. And, and for one thing, our political structure of, uh, that we call democracy makes such issues, uh, I, I think, more of an intrusion upon the scriptures than it does uh, maybe what they intend it to be. Uh, for example, you can end up making the scriptures say something about uh, a topic in the Bible that, or, or about a topic that the Bible never addresses. Or maybe you can uh, address topics in an unbalanced and inconsistent manner and you end up giving a skewed perspective or view on what God really thinks about our political, cultural, and societal lifestyle. Uh, 
Um, Christians are already too easily distracted from the Great Commission in order to engage in partisan politics. And uh, with this issue that's coming up next month, I, I think it's right to draw our attention to the fact that there is a sanctity to life. It, it is important that we consider that. And uh, the matter of abortion is uh, a moral issue, and we do have a responsibility uh, to stand on moral ground. And I think it, that even includes at times of voting. You know, it, it's a good thing to do that. But again, with a bigger picture in mind, I, I don't want us to get the idea that uh, our corrupt culture as it is is ever going to be transformed for the better merely by political movements or, or a pop culture type of approach. We can vote to overturn these things and uh, keep them from becoming law, but we've still not and we still won't solve the moral problems that our society has. And along with that, it's going to take more than just simply voting. And uh, I don't want us to think as Christians that when we voted, we've, we've done all there is to our duty. There's, there's more to it than that. And, and I see something that, that's very important, I think, for, for each one of us. And we need to remember the transforming culture is really the work of God. That's the gospel in particular and through his word. And our ministry should be devoted to that. Paul writes in, second, in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning verse 1, and says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And listen to this. This is why. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I do believe in light of that and in spite of that, politicians have stepped, even overstepped, into spiritual and moral areas. And they've ended up promoting things that are actually horrific, as well as blasphemous and, and, and wicked in, in nature in the way that they do things. And, and they're incredibly inconsistent in the way they approach some of these matters. I believe one of the main responsibilities that a preacher has, and I believe the church has as well, is to bring the word of God to bear upon the church and upon the world and give us God's voice to clarify and to be able to discern these issues. So uh, the scripture that was read this morning and, and the one that I've alluded to, I'm not going to give any kind of an exposition of the scriptures, even though uh, that's what we should do as preachers and, and, and the church, to explain the Bible verse by verse, book by book, and, and make application for our day in and day out living. But on the other hand, we need to understand sometimes we address the issues of our time in a way that uh, they affect us and and just bringing the overall nature of the truth of God's word to bear on our understanding as we look at that. So, uh, again, I want to take this lesson and the lesson next week, and I want to draw your attention to uh, what Paul said in the Second Corinthians passage, a ministry of reconciliation. And what he said in First Corinthians, it's the power of God that needs to be at work and not the wisdom of men. In the 2 Corinthians 5 passage, Paul says the key to that is understanding it's a reconciliation. It's bringing people to be in Christ. That God has sought to reconcile sinners to himself. And in that reconciliation produces a new creature. Everything becomes new. Your value system, your morals, everything becomes new when you are in Christ. 
We then become ambassadors for Christ. And, and even though the immediate context was speaking to the apostles and what they do, it's passed down through us in a secondary way that we realize no apostles here, but we do have the church and we do have Christians and we still have a ministry of reconciliation before us. And so the mandate for the Christian then becomes reconcile the world back to God through Christ and to take that message. And so uh, those are the things that I want to approach in talking about the Bible, culture, morality, and Christianity, the church, I guess, if you want to, want to do with that. So here's some of the things that I want to suggest in this lesson. First of all, uh, in Christianity today or in Christendom overall, there's an effort being made, an emphasis, or an, uh, an emphasis on another kind of effort. And it's an effort to produce morality. Morality, morality, morality. And it's a growing, a rapidly growing thing that's taking place. And it seems as though it needs to be addressed again because the interest becomes heightened when you have issues like the, the voting issue for next month. Morality, and that's, that's the, the key cry. And morality is important. But there's a call to, to Christian thinking people to get so involved that what we need in this nation more than anything else is a, is a higher level of morality to engage ourselves with all of our energy, our resources, our time, our money, and, and get involved in an effort politically and, and through the media and through pressure groups and change the moral character of our society. And the Bible's taking us to something much deeper, much more powerful and stronger than just that. But many Christians end up getting uh, so involved in that they get distracted and sidetracked from what the bigger picture really is. In 2000, John MacArthur wrote a book entitled, Why Government Can't Save You. I thought that was a pretty interesting title. And in the book, which I haven't read yet, but the synopsis of it that I've gotten, I, I want to read it just based on the title. He attempted to say that... Uh, in a perhaps somewhat sarcastic title, as he called it, uh, if you're going to deal with the issue of salvation, government's not going to help you. That's a strong phrase. What he was really trying to say and, and did say in the book was, for the Christian, the mandate is not about cultural morality. The, the mandate for the Christian is about salvation. And the government plays no role in that directly. Uh, the book ended up not generating too much interest, probably based on the title alone, and not too many people even bought it, and even fewer, he said, read it. But it does carry, in his estimation, and I think just based on what I've heard about it, it does carry an important biblical message that we should look into and consider. Because what we really have is an understanding that it's a ministry of reconciliation. It's the word of reconciliation. It's not morality we preach. It's reconciliation. Come back to God. Let God structure and restructure your entire life, not just the moral character, through Jesus. The concern that uh, we live in a morally debauched society, there's no doubt about that. It doesn't please God, and it doesn't please believers. Uh, and I would say probably it doesn't please you or me either as we stop and look around. As you can drive down the streets and see it on so many different levels. 
We should desire virtue. We should desire integrity. We should desire honesty and morality. But these things, while they do express God's will and God's law, that's not the heart of it. There's more than that. It's our responsibility to address sin, to confront sin, to call sin what it is, to expose it, and to attack it. That, I believe, is true. And so secondly, the real issue is not about whether we're against immorality. Uh, I don't think there's a person in here who's not against immorality. Uh, If you are, you're... If you're not against immorality, you're probably in the wrong building. Either that or we need to talk. We should all be against immorality. But it's about what we view as being the solution that's the issue. We want true, lasting virtue to characterize people. We want righteousness, not unrighteousness. But the issue is, how do we get more morality for people? How do we get people to be more moral in their standards and their, in their view? And for many, they want to use this idea of politics and, and the media and lobbying and public intimidation uh, and all these other things that are there. They pour millions of dollars into elections. They, they put uh, media events and uh, a list of, as I said before, the, the political pressure groups. You know, I, I driving down the street last week and saw folks standing outside with their signs about uh, anti-abortion. And so we do all these kinds of things. That's what we call people to do. But I believe this. Calling for Christians and moral thinking people simply to vote is not the answer. That's not the answer. There's more that we need to do. I'm not saying don't vote. Vote. It's important. It counts. I'm not saying that your vote does no good. I I believe it does. You should take advantage of that. But there are people who think... That if America becomes moral, God's going to bless America. There are people who think if America becomes moral and religious, then God's going to doubly bless America. And so we have uh, people saying, you know, let's put God back in the public discourse. Let's put prayer back in schools. Let's put the Ten Commandments up on the walls in public places and in courtrooms. Let's stop abortion. Let's stop rampant homosexuality. Let's stop pornography and all those other things. If we can just bring about some kind of morality, and better yet, some kind of commitment to God in that, we'll be blessed. But the third point is a point of clarification. And I think we need to make this one real clear. Morality And religion alone will never invite the blessing of God for the long run. It won't. Yeah, but Jonah went and preached to Nineveh and the whole city repented. How long did that last? How did that play out in the big picture of what God had in mind? Morality and religion never have done that and they never will. Not in the long run. A more moral America, a more moral and religious America does not advance the divine favor one bit per se. It's the preaching of the gospel and reconciling people back to God. A more moral and more religious America will not escape divine judgment any more than the Pharisees with their, in, uh, in their time of Judaism when they, they didn't escape what Jesus had to say about them. They ended up going through a, a devastating judgment in A.D. 70. And yet, they claimed to be very religious and supposedly the most moral people of their society. And Jesus warned us about those kinds of things on several occasions. The only thing that God blesses 
the only thing that God blesses, that just the one, is saving faith in and love for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he blesses in the long run and overall. And anybody who does not believe in, submit to, and love the Lord Jesus Christ is still going to be counted among the cursed. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's hard to to consider, but it's true. It's true when you look at that. And as Christians, of course, we're for morality. We're not for immorality. We can do some topical teaching. We can do some uh, superficial good. We can uh, go through political means and talk about that. Because we live in a republic. We live in in a supposed democracy on all of that. And we can, we can mitigate public indecency in some ways, but we're not going to cure it. While we mitigate public scandal and, and use our uh, democratic privileges, that doesn't advance the divine favor. That's not the key to it. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22 says, If any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. And the word means cursed, judged, damned, condemned. The one and only thing that God blesses for the long haul and overall is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for his son. And that kind of gets a, the picture there. And I, and I think it brings us around a little bit to uh, look at some of the ideas that are involved. But, you know, it's not about being against people who hate evil and wickedness. Because you and I are among them. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 says... Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of eternal life. Not just this life, but the life to come. Godliness takes into consideration more than just morality. Godliness takes into consideration the idea of becoming completely like God on his terms, according to his word. And we need to be more concerned about something than just a a superficial change in the behavior patterns of people. They need to be reconciled to God. So the next thing it brings up is, uh, it's a question of understanding what our mandate is. Where should our energy go in all of this? And again, it's actually more than that and beyond all of that. Uh, I'm concerned about people who get caught up in in the the smaller portion of the picture and they miss out on, on the big picture overall. You want to hate sin, you want to hate immorality, you want to hate what's wrong, you want to hate unrighteousness, injustice, and and wickedness, and and all those things. And and you should. You should. But when you get swept away by all those things and you miss the idea of what Christianity is about, how much good have you really done? Many professing Christians are consumed with all the uh, public morality issues that are going on, and uh, there's a growing group called the religious right. And it's kind of a a neoliberalism, as I understand it, by definition, where people set aside uh, the saving gospel in favor of the social gospel. Take care of society, take care of the the social morals, and that will help us out. The statement was made, and I thought, boy, this is rather shocking to, to look at and consider. Morality can damn just like immorality can, if it's outside of Jesus. That's a, that's a powerful thing to consider. 
Morality doesn't just bring about divine blessings. Jesus went head to head with those Pharisees, the most superficially religious folks uh, in his day, as far as the morality was concerned. If you read Matthew chapter 23, you find Jesus and Matthew 23 and moral people all coming to a head. And he would use some of his most scathing, searing, severe invectives on the religious right of his day then. He, he addresses the, the religious moral people, the people who were fastidious keepers of the law, at least they thought so in their own thinking, and held on to their human traditions. And here's what he would say. In verse 13, he would say, Woe, which carries the connotation of, of damning and, and judgment. And, you know, you're looking for trouble. There's a curse coming upon you. In verse 14, he would repeat that. Verse 15, he would repeat it. In verse 16, he would say, Woe to you, blind guides. In verse 17, he called them fools and blind men. Verse 19, blind men. Verse 23, woe to you again, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 26, you blind Pharisees. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees. And it just keeps going like that all the way through the chapter. And in verse 37, he finally says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, you stone those that are sent to you, your house is being left to you desolate. And he's looking ahead to the destruction that would come in A.D. 70. It wasn't a matter of just having religion and morality. It's having faith in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting? Is that Jesus never said those words to the outcasts, to the prostitutes, and to the criminals. In fact, Jesus was accused of spending too much time with those kind of people, the tax collectors and the sinners. And if you ask yourself today, you know, what's our cultural version today? Our societal, political, religious Who are those outcasts today? How would we view them? And the religious folks have said Jesus was a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, that was a label put on him by the religious folks. Kind of interesting to consider. And I guess I would bring it together by saying this. Moralism has never been the message of the Bible. It's never been the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the Old Testament prophets, in spite of what Jonah did at Nineveh. He was calling them to more than just a moral thing. He was calling them back to God on God's terms. It was never the message of the Messiah when Jesus comes and you read through the Gospels. It was never the message of the New Testament apostles and prophets. And it's never been God's message to people of the world uh, overall. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says, All your righteousness is as filthy rags. That means you can stack up all of your morality, all of your religious pious and all these other outlooks, but without doing it on God's terms, God's way, according to God's word, what have you got? It's a pile of filthy rags based on itself. In Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 23 
Well, you find in Romans 3 that it's a very important chapter because uh, Paul ends up describing, here's, uh, here's the end of the condition of humanity. Chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20. The entire world is condemned and guilty and indicted under sin based upon their, the pagan practices, based upon uh, just simply trying to cling to morality alone that the Jews had, just trying to be a moral person in general. It, it didn't get that. And so when he gets to verse 10 and verse 11, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. And verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Morals, morality, is not enough. So whatever imaginary righteousness people have, whatever superficial morality they may exhibit, in the end, you can stack it all up and say, they're still not righteous before God. It doesn't count. Not in the long run. There's not one who's even good enough, verse 12 says. Verse 19, Romans 3 says that everybody under the law, everybody who lives according to the law to some degree or another, is going to find that their mouths are closed, they have no defense, and the whole world is accountable and guilty before God, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, verse 20 says. So again, you know, you can become moral, you can change, you can turn over your life and have some what would call a, a moral rearmament. But where are you overall? You come through a crisis and decide, you know, you're going to turn away from immorality and start living a better, cleaner life and clean up your act. But if it doesn't have a bearing on your relationship with God, what have you got? If it doesn't have a bearing on your faith in Jesus Christ, what have you got? So the biblical message is not that humanity is divided between the moral and immoral. Or that humanity is divided between the good and the bad. Or that humanity is divided between the virtuous and the wicked. The message of the Bible is all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no division. The entire world outside of Jesus Christ is bad, whether they're moral or immoral. They're still considered wicked. It's just a question of degree and the manifestation that they have. In Romans chapter 2, he would tell the Jews, you know, all of your law-keeping, what has it gotten you if you've rejected Jesus? And whatever somebody's external degree of morality might be, all end up being condemned sinners. Uh, You can be the most moral Pharisee in Israel. You might be the most moral rabbi. You might be the most moral uh, religious cleric in whatever belief system you have. The most moral, self-righteous, clean-living whatever. And you still find yourself lost and lumped with the prostitutes and the drug addicts and all of the others who won't accept Jesus either. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, not through morality. So that gives us a bigger picture of saying, this is important, but there's something even more important. So if we want to change, what's the answer? You've got to go beyond mere morality. Morality doesn't commend the blessing of God. Romans 2, 11 and 12 says, there's no partiality with God. And that sounds like kind of a hopeful statement at first. There's, there's no partiality with God. But he goes on to say, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
Whatever your relationship might be to God, if you're just using a law system and, and, and morals and, and, and being good, it doesn't count. You need Jesus. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul will say that the Jews, not understanding the righteousness of God, go about to establish their own righteousness. He says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, when you look at the idea of trying to have a more moral society, is there good to that? There's, there's good to that. It would make life easier in many ways. But how do you get about that? How do you, how do you bring that about? Not through politics. Not merely through uh, moral measures of society. We're called to be a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom of politicians. Priests who serve Jesus Christ, the Lord. And we bring people to God through Christ. We call them to repentance, to turn away from the world, turn to God. We point them to baptism, to make contact with the blood of Christ by faith. Faith in his saving work through his death and his resurrection. By walking in a, in a daily pattern of life that reflects this person really believes Jesus Christ is Lord. And it shows. When you bring people to Christ, you change their values you change their morals, you change their lifestyle. And that, that pleases God. I told you a few weeks ago I wanted to start looking at some of the songs in my invitation. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus is falling tenderly upon your ear. Sweet his cry of love and pity is calling. Turn and listen. Stay and hear. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, lean upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. What part of your life may need some changing right now. Listen to the voice of Jesus and come while we stand and sing.